I wouldn't have made that up. That surprised me, but that's exactly the way this should have ended. And I'm glad that's the way that it works in the story of the Bible, which is in so many ways what the Bible actually is. The Bible is not, by its nature, a book of rules. It's not, by its nature, a book of tips for life. By its nature, it really is a story of relationship. And when it comes down to it, to be more specific, it's the story of how God relates to sinful human beings. The good story, the good news story, a story that doesn't end in God relates to sinful human beings by destroying them like they deserve. A story of how God relates to sinful human beings, how God reconciles sinful human beings to himself through his son. That's the story. In order to get there, there's a plot twist that is unexpected to people who are even part of the story. <clears throat> and it's the way that the story should end. When you look at the whole thing, you look at it and say, I wouldn't have made that up, but that's exactly the way that it should end. It, it, it's an ending to the story that's continuous with the story, that matches the story in all the best ways. And so as Luke has been writing to his friend that he calls Theophilus to give him assurance about the things that he's learned about Jesus, one of the things that he's done is that he has shown that this thing about Jesus as the Messiah, this is not some kind of man-made novelty. This is not something that people sort of cobbled together and, and said, this is how you can be saved. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning. It's continuous with what God has been up to. And so one of the ways Luke does that is early in the book, uh, the early one or two chapters of Luke sound a lot like the Old Testament because really they take place in the Old Testament time. And Luke says God is continuing the very work he's been doing the whole time. And that's part of the assurance for Theophilus. The other part of the assurance is that Jesus is also different from what we would have expected even if we were part of the story. Even if we were the most honored part of the story like John the Baptist was. Here in our passage this morning in Luke 7, uh, 18 through 35, the representative of the first part of the story called the Old Covenant, finds himself bewildered when the new part of the story shows up. We quote a, uh, an old Steve Taylor song that, that says, you squint with the light of the truth in your eyes. Something so much more glorious than the glorious thing that's shown up already comes and, and you find yourself going a little cross-eyed. And we find that actually even happening to John the Baptist here. And so Luke, as he writes to Theophilus, says this is continuous with, with what God has been doing. And it is the unexpected thing that is exactly what we might have expected. When that comes together in that way, we have reason to pay close attention to Jesus and to find him trustworthy. Luke's forthrightness, his openness in his book about John the Baptist's doubt 
in the end, helps to show how reliable faith in Jesus is. This isn't simply something that looks nice on the surface, but turns out to be cheap and breaks when you use it. It's something better than any of us would make up. So John the Baptist, we find in this passage, by his faithfulness to his assigned role, by faithfully playing his part in the story, has prepared people for a better Messiah than even he expects. We see this in Luke 7, 18 through 35. I want to read it and then we'll look at it. Luke 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many, many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. So here's John. We want to kind of put ourselves in his sandals as best we can. Uh, his sandals with him in them are in prison right now. We know that from chapter 3 of Luke. Uh, Herod has put him in prison. And from there, John gets a full report of what it is that Jesus has been doing. A full report, verse 18, of all these things. These things like Jesus' ministry to the needy. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' serving of undeserving outsiders. Jesus welcoming sinners in by his mercy. That report 
stirs a question in John. And, and he wants an answer from Jesus himself. There's something about this report that he's struggling to make sense of. And so he sends the question to Jesus. It's repeated verbatim by, his, by the ones he sends. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's saying, my whole job, and I don't doubt it, my whole job is, was to announce the fact that Messiah, that Christ, is to come. To tell people that he who is mightier than I is coming. And I look at you, Jesus, and, and you're amazing. You're, you're, you're my best guess out of anybody as to who that Messiah would be. And yet you're different. You're, you're, even in some ways, you're different from me and my disciples. You and your disciples do some things differently than I and my disciples did. And, and there are some things happening that I didn't expect. So even back in chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, we see the, the Pharisees themselves making a distinction between John and his disciples and how they lived, and Jesus and his disciples in the shape of their life. They said, we and, and our disciples and John and his disciples, we fast, but Jesus, you and your disciples don't. So, so what gives? And John no doubt sees some of these differences. There's, there's something different here. What's going on? The other thing that I think John sees here is that when, when John says, one who is mightier than I is coming, <clears throat> here's what he told them. He says, I, I told them when I announced the coming of the Messiah, I told them that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I'm not seeing that. I'm in jail. I'm unjustly in jail. So you almost hear John asking the question, where is the God of justice? I, I said that the Messiah was going to come and he's going to bring judgment. And I'm not seeing that judgment right now. So what's going on? What, what does this mean? Now notice, this is really relevant for us, notice that even as John is bewildered by some things about Jesus, where does he go for his answers? He goes to Jesus. He sends disciples to Jesus. He keeps looking to Jesus. There is a universe of difference between questioning Jesus and asking Jesus questions. Jesus can handle all of your questions. And that's what John does. John, John does not come to interrogate Jesus. He does send people to ask him questions. And Jesus, of course, is qualified to give an answer. And he gives an answer that cannot be ignored. And here's what he does. In verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And then he tells to John's disciples, Go tell him. Go tell John what you have seen and heard. Now in one sense we might look at that and say, Wow, just answers the question, right? Uh, he's, he's amazing. He does amazing things. His word must be reliable, all of which is true. And yet Jesus isn't only proving something to John by his power. He's, he's showing John something about the nature of his ministry. He's teaching John about what the Messiah is about. Because what's he doing as he does all those things? What, what do you see missing from all those things? From 
uh, healing people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and bestowing sight on the blind. Well, what Jesus is doing there is he's rolling back judgment. He's reversing the results of the curse in people's lives. So again, where's the judgment on sin? Where's the judgment on sinners here? Even John the Baptist needs help understanding the story. So Jesus describes the story, and he he does it in a way that shows to someone like John, to someone who stands in the line of John, that you know what? Of course it had to happen this way. Because when he describes it this way, the, 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 um, I lost my place. <laughs> Using Jesus' words. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And so on. What is that? I heard one commentator this week describe it as uh, a symphony of echoes from Isaiah. This is the prophets. The prophets said that this would happen when the Messiah came. That all these kinds of things were going to happen. That the Messiah was going to come and he was going to roll back judgment. And he was going to show mercy to those who needed it and didn't deserve it. And Jesus says, John, here you are in the line of the prophets. This is exactly what the prophets said was going to happen. And I'm not leaving out the judgment, John. I'm not leaving out the judgment because what am I doing by showing mercy to undeserving sinners? Well, I'm separating the wheat from the chaff because I'm showing mercy to sinners in such a way that people have no choice but to respond. And they're either going to respond with, I don't need that mercy, so I don't need you, or I need that mercy, so I need you. And the judgment is coming in an entirely different form. Not simply by Jesus coming and saying, who didn't obey the law? You're all toast. By coming and saying, who will receive the mercy that I bring? And those who reject it are those who receive the judgment the Messiah came to bring. He did come to judge, but in in a different way than the law itself might have expected. He says, John, I I match the preparatory message that you preached. You did your job. You did your job well. And I'm here fulfilling the preparation that you laid out. And I'm doing it in an even better way than you expected. So blessed is the one who looks at me and says, that's not what I expected, but it's better. And I'm not going anywhere because this is exactly what I need. Blessed, Jesus says, is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who looks at me and decides I wouldn't have made that up, but that's exactly the way that it should be. God magnifying his mercy and in the process separating out those who despise it. So, what was John? I mean, here here he is asking questions of Jesus and even expressing doubts as Jesus really the Christ, and Jesus sends him an undeniable message to teach him. And so, so if you overheard this, you might ask, well, well, then what was John? I mean, was he really legit to ask questions like that? 
Was he a false prophet? Was he a well-meaning but confused fanatic out in the desert just yelling at us? No. Jesus understands John's role better than John himself does. And so here's another one of these teaching moments. We saw this a couple weeks ago where Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to tell them what's going on. And he does that with John. He says, John is, is in one sense, the most honored part of this whole story up until now. So he starts to ask them, uh, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And of course, John is a mysterious figure, right? He's out there in, in wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey and telling people they need to change their lives. And he's pretty mysterious. But there are some things just by watching him that you can know he was not. Was he a reed shaken by the wind? Did, did you go out into the wilderness to hear some kind of theological and ethical pansy that tells you to think happy thoughts and you can fly? Well, no. John obviously wasn't that. You could tell by looking at him. Uh, was he a man dressed in soft clothing? Was he some kind of huckster who was in it for the money? You know that wasn't true. Those of you who went out to see him, you knew when you heard John there was something real happening. You knew that this was not some kind of fake thing. John was the opposite of a reed shaken by the wind. He was the opposite of a man dressed in soft clothing. Despite John's present doubt, you know if you saw him that John was characterized by real and self-sacrificial mission. That's what he was about. You could see it when you saw him talk. So, what options are left? Here's a man who shows up. You know there's something real going on. He's telling you he has a message from God. What kind of person is that? A prophet? Yes, Jesus says. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This was the prophesied prophet. As prophet said, here's what God is going to do. Here's, here's the beginnings of the story of God's relationship to sinners. One of the things that they did is they promised a prophet who would come before the Messiah. Malachi did it specifically, and this is what Jesus said. This is the one, John is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. That's where John fits in the story. He's the prophesied prophet. And Jesus knows the story even better than John. There's an interesting verse in Malachi, right before Malachi 3.1. And it asks a question that sounds so much like the question that John himself is asking. <clears throat> it's at the end of Malachi 2.17, right before Malachi 3.1. The people of God are asking, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? And you can hear that in, in John as he's looking for this judgment on sinners to come and wondering what, what's going on. And now Jesus says, here's this question. And there was somebody who was promised who would come right before the God of justice shows up. And that's John. John is the one who has shown up to prepare the way for God himself to come and answer the question, where is the God of justice? And when the God of justice shows up, he shows up in a better way. 
He shows up in a way that does more than punish sinners. He shows up in such a way as to rescue sinners and to do it justly. And here he is. So, how then did John prepare the way for Jesus? How, how did he do that? Especially if he, didn't, if he didn't fully understand his part of the story. Or he didn't fully understand how Jesus would fulfill the story. It came as a surprise to him. How did he do it? How did he prepare people? Later in Malachi, Malachi will say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse you may be familiar with. And he's going to restore the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children. He's going to restore people. And how is he going to do that? What's the tool that he's going to use? Well, it's the verse right before that verse at the end of Malachi 4. Here's what God says. Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember my law. Come back to what it is that I have told you to do. Come back to it. Remember it. And then the question is, why? Why is God calling people back to his law? Why is God calling people back to his law through John? And we find out through Jesus' ministry that it's not ultimately to meet their need. It's ultimately to show them their need. John is preparing people to have their need met in Jesus by reminding them of the perfect standard of the law. So that as people hear that, and God opens their hearts and they begin to realize, I need help. I, I need somebody else to fulfill this on my behalf. I can't do this on my own. I'm needy. I'm poor. And Jesus says that's exactly right. And blessed are the poor. You're the ones that I've come for. So John fulfills his role by calling people back to the law in order to prepare them to receive Jesus as needy sinners. And here's Jesus. And the way is prepared for him. And some are prepared to receive him. And as different as John and Jesus are, one of the things that helps us to see that they're part of the same story, and this is where Jesus goes next, is that they are accepted together and they're rejected together. We see that in verses 29 through 35. Some people accept Jesus and John together. Some reject them together. Verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So those who have accepted John's baptism are those who now, when they hear Jesus saying, John has prepared the way for me, they declare God just. It's a way of saying, God has done this in the right way. This, this sounds right to me. When we hear Jesus' evaluation of John, his baptism effectively prepared the way for Jesus. So that those who received John are now prepared to receive Jesus. They're prepared to receive the God of justice, who is here, 
ready to justify sinners. And they're saying God's way of doing it is right. We're needy. We need Him to do this for us. Those who received that preparation said God's way of doing this is right and good. And those who reject John are also those who reject Jesus. Those who say, in the end, we're good enough on our own. So Jesus actually uses John as an example later on in Luke. And people come to him and they say, what authority do you have to tell us these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answers their question with a question. He says, I tell you what, uh, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, then I'll answer yours. And it's not a trick question. It's not just a hard question that gets them out of having to answer theirs. He allows them to answer their own question. He says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Come from heaven or did it come from man? And in the end, they refuse to answer the question because they've rejected the authority that John's baptism actually came from. They've rejected the message that has come through John. And as a result, they reject the message about Jesus. So Jesus says, if you answer the question about John correctly, you're going to be prepared to receive me. If you try to ignore John, you're going to miss me because we're part of the same story. We're part of the same purpose of God, the purpose of God for you. You are all needy sinners, Jesus would say. And you're, those of you who are rejecting what John said are rejecting the purpose of God for yourselves. You're dissatisfied with both of us. As different as we are, we're united in the fact that you look at both of us and say, I, I want nothing to do with you. Those who reject John and Jesus are what Jesus calls the children of this generation in verse 31. They are the insiders, those who think they deserve to be here because they showed up first. They're the natural born children who are only naturally born and think it's enough. What are those people like? Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation in verse 31? Jesus knows what to compare them to. He says, they're like children in a marketplace. Now, in this parable, some of you no doubt have read this parable before and maybe wondered, uh, when Jesus tells this parable, there, there are children in the parable calling out and there are people they're calling out to. So, who, who are the children in this parable and who are the people that they're, that they're calling out to? Are, are the children those who won't play along, who, who won't dance when there's a song sung, who, who won't weep when there's a dirge played? Or is it the other way around? If we look carefully at the way that Jesus introduces and explains the parable, it becomes clear who Jesus is talking about. Look at how Jesus introduces the parable. He says, the people of this generation are like children sitting in the marketplace. So he makes it pretty clear that the children sitting in the marketplace are the ones who are those who reject his message. That's their place in the parable. Those that they're calling out to are the ones they're rejecting. And that's the way Jesus explains the parable. So this is why Daryl Bach, another commentator on Luke, calls this parable the parable of the brats. 
These are kids who have made up a game, and if anybody shows up who won't play by their rules of the game, they say, we don't like you. We don't want you. We reject you. And that's exactly what's happening. John the Baptist shows up, and he won't play party when they want to play party. John the Baptist shows up, and he has a way of expressing in, in a final way the fact that we have a deep need and a longing for the Messiah to come. And so he lives a, a, a really tough lifestyle, and his disciples live a really tough lifestyle. And it's a way of saying with their whole life, God, come, save us, send the one that you promised to us. And the brats in the marketplace say, come party with us. Look at him. Look at him out there. He's living this hard life. And, and they're saying he has a demon. They're, they're predisposed to reject him and reject his message because he won't play by their rules. And then Jesus shows up. And the answer is here. And the time is no longer to say, God, we still need you to provide for us because the provision is here. And it's time to have a party. And they want to play by their own rules. And they want Jesus to play by their rules. And so they try to play a dirge and they say, come play funeral with us. And Jesus says, it's not time for a funeral. It's time for a party. And they say, we've made up our own rules. And you're not playing by our rules. You won't let us be in control. So we're not going to play with you. You, you won't cooperate with our rules. And so we reject the whole story that you're a part of. We reject the John part of the story. We reject the Jesus part of the story. We don't want anything to do with it. <clears throat> and Jesus says, you complain because you complain about everyone who won't play your game because you reject the purpose of God for yourself. His purpose is to receive you mercifully as a needy sinner on Christ's account. He says, you reject the sinner part. And so you reject the needy part, and so you reject the accept part as well. You've replaced the whole story with your own rules. And so that's, in brief, here as we close, the question for us. Uh, are there people that you're dealing with who, have, who, have, who, who are still trying to make it by their own rules? who are trying to make it just by uh, living as wholeheartedly for themselves as they possibly can, who are trying to do it by obeying the kinds of rules that they hope God will bless them for, who are trying to do it by making sure that they keep themselves safe from as many risks as they can, who are trying to do it by some form of performance, um, and are we as well? Are we doing that? And, and here's how we would take the point of this passage and apply it to those folks and, and to us. One of the things that God did by sending the law, by sending the, the law through Moses, was to give us the very best substitute possible. To tell him, if you're going to try to do it on your own, here's the way that would actually work if you did it try to make up our own, and they're never good enough. But God said, here's a law that if you do it, you will actually live. And it doesn't work for anybody. And so we could rightly ask the question, if the best substitute that could ever be given didn't give life to anyone, then how well is my substitute going to work? And for us constantly to be saying, 
whatever it is that I'm trying to do to make sure that things work out well for myself, that's a place where instead I need to trust in Jesus. If I'm trying to make sure that I protect myself, if I'm trying to make sure that I perform well enough, if I have a fear inside myself, that if I don't perform well enough in this area, that's what's going to ruin me. That, that's a place where we need to turn and say, Jesus, this is where I need you. I cannot perform well enough to take care of myself. I can't guarantee enough pleasure for myself, enough good for myself. I can't guarantee enough money for myself to give myself life. You know, many of those rules that we have uh, have elements of truth to them, and they're useful. Those, those sets of laws that we have often have pieces of reality in them. But here's what none of them can do. None of them can make us new people. And we can't use any of them to make others new people. So Jesus says at the very end, you know, you reject this whole thing, but wisdom is justified by all her children. So God has said in, in Luke, this is Luke 11.49, Therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. This is what the wisdom of God has done. He has sent prophets ahead, and then Jesus says that, that all the all the prophets prophesied until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And that's the good news that can make people children of the kingdom. The good news that God reconciles sinners to himself, not through the law, not through performance, not through taking, uh, taking matters into our own hands, but through his son alone. Father, we want to be a part of your story. It's a better story than we would write. Uh, it's, it can be uh, bewildering even to those who are in the middle of the story. But we would never have made up something better. We never could have. We needed you to write this story, and we want you to write us into it. So we pray that you would. I pray that everyone here would, would entrust themselves entirely to Jesus, and that we would spread the aroma of Jesus to others around us by the power of your Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.